got a treat in store this week. Not one, but two brilliant female entrepreneurs for you. Over a decade ago, Food52 set out to bring cooks together to exchange ideas and recipes, to provide support, and to deliver a real sense of togetherness in the kitchen amongst a community as passionate about great food as the people that created the company. In the years since, those aspirations have been realised, and on a scale that even those bold founders might have dreamed about, but couldn't surely have expected. Alongside untold thousands of recipes and articles, you can add to the list cookbooks, products that get the Food52 seal of approval, and much more besides. And that passionate community? Well, that now numbers in the millions. And if that's not enough to whet your appetite for today's programme, how about we add to the mix the founder of the microwave cookware brand that's stirring up something of a culinary revolution. It's time to tuck in. This is The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. So, we're off to meet Food 52's Amanda Hesse. Given that Amanda's stateside and often on the move between coasts, I thought that this week on the show I could usefully call upon the services of Monocle's US editor and station chief in Los Angeles, Chris Lord. Chris, this is London Calling. Now, Amanda's usually based in Brooklyn Heights, but Chris, I gather you tracked her down a little way up the coast from your LA base. Where have you been, Chris? Bit of a road trip? Tom, it was a bit of a road trip, yeah. So I went up to Santa Barbara, up the west coast of the US, um, to a very sunny beach town there, where I met with the co-founder of Food 52, Amanda Hesse. Now, if you're familiar with Food 52, then it's very hard to find people who don't adore this brand. It's a community of basically chefs and people who amateur cooks and so on, who share their recipes online. It sounds quite simple. But what's happened over the last decade or so is that they've really changed from just being a place to post recipes and to share recipes to also being a kind of media company where they send videographers out to go and film people in their kitchens and created this incredible brand where basically people who are, you know, are not full-time chefs have the resources available to them so that they look like they're on a cooking program. It's very, very clever. It's become very, very popular. They now sell products through there. And we had a great conversation. I, I met up with her, as I say, in Santa Barbara, where she spends a little bit of her summer every year to recharge and sort of reflect on where the brand's going. And Chris, it's interesting, and I'm sure your conversation, which we're going to hear in just a moment, will touch upon this, but they've acquired some really interesting heritage brands, the likes of Schoolhouse, uh, which featured on Monocle 24 probably about a decade ago now, and other brands Mm. like Dansk. As you mentioned, it's been real expansion, but not at a pace that seems to be out of step with the core principles of the brand. No, exactly. And I think the reason for that is the kinds of brands that they've been acquiring. So you mentioned Schoolhouse there. Their tagline famously is modern American heirlooms. You know, they're very interested in playing what Amanda calls the long game as a brand. And I think that chimes very well with what she has done with Food 52. It's about slow building of a very recognizable, but also very clear voiced brand. Uh, And she's found common goal, if you like, with these brands that she's been steadily acquiring, most of which are cookware brands, but they're all about, you know, made with very, very high production values, but also very localised. Schoolhouse is entirely made in Portland, Oregon. And as you mentioned, you spoke to them before, Tom, you know how important to them sort of maintaining a very, very coherent and friendly brand, I think, actually, is probably the best way to do it, where something feels homely, it feels familiar. And I think Amanda, you'll hear in the interview the way she talks about the brand that she has built, 
she's also got that kind of familiarity. It's not just a straightforward business. There's something very homely and down-to-earth about it. It's very, very charming, for want of a better word. Now, Food52, she founded in 2009, and at the time, she was just emerging from having been the long-standing recipe writer and food writer at the New York Times. And I asked her first where food was at at that moment. What was it about where food culture was going in the US that prompted this extraordinary brand to come to be? It was the perception of food as a central part of your life, that it was not something that, you know, a small subset of people were interested in, but that actually a much broader swath of Americans had become really interested in eating better, having it be a central part of how they socialized with friends, what they wanted to know about ingredients, where they shopped for food. Like where you shopped for food became kind of like what kind of car do you drive? You know, it became a a part of your identity. And this shift to us was something that was a real cultural sea change and that they were going to need to be companies and brands that supported it. And having worked at the New York Times in food for many years at that point, I had seen, I essentially was on the front lines of reporting on that shift. And, you know, we wanted to kind of get out in front and create a new kind of company that turned traditional media upside down by having it be community driven and user generated content and having that be curated, but also having it be a place online where, yes, you could get really trustworthy, authoritative content, but also get the tools, the stylish touches that you wanted in your kitchen at home, all in one place. Because it began, it was very practical almost from the beginning, wasn't it? It was recipes, it was people submitting their own recipes. We launched in September of 2009 and we did, we focused very much on content in the beginning because we knew that content was the gateway to developing loyalty and trust with readers. And once you develop that, you can add different kinds of content, like, you know, different mediums, whether it's video or podcast or books. You have to have a voice that people feel really connected to, a brand voice, a brand aesthetic. And a lot of that understanding came from our experience in media and from traditional media, who has really, I think, traditional lifestyle media has really defined that. You were thinking like editors, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And we just felt like that was really sorely lacking online. We were very selective about what kind of media company we wanted to be, but also that we put a stake in the ground, too, that we didn't want to be just a media company. We wanted to be more than that. By December 2009, we had a shop. We didn't actually sell anything. What we did was feature things that we liked, but we arranged it. It looked like an e-commerce shop with categories and product pages. We just linked off to where you could buy them. And so that becomes also part of your brand building exercise ultimately, doesn't it? Here are people that we like, here's manufacturers that we like, here's brands that represent our values. But also it becomes a real media company in itself. You're sending video crews out to go and film people in their own kitchen. Is that right? Yeah. So we wanted anyone who came to the site to feel welcome. They could participate at whatever level or depth that they wanted to, whether that was just being a reader and using the recipes or creating original recipes and adding them. We also understood, though, that the average person might not be like the most amazing food photographer or, you know, have all the tools and skills that you need in kind of professional food media to produce the final product. We could add that layer. And so that was where we curated. You know, we would take our community recipes and we would sift through them, we would test them, we would photograph them professionally and give that polish that would help another reader come in and see like, oh wow, this is an amazing recipe. Something that they might not otherwise have been able to pick up. I'm interested, you talked before about the importance of building something that users can trust. How do you think you do that as a young company? How do you start to 
create that sense of trust. How do you do it? I think the most important ingredient is the voice of people behind the brand. You know, food is an emotional topic, right? It's like something that people feel emotionally connected to. And I think that if you are interacting with a brand that is impersonal, you don't know who's behind it, who works there, whose recipe it is, it's really hard to feel that connection. We just put that first and foremost. We felt like, yes, of course, having a consistent aesthetic, a really distinct, you know, having in general a brand voice that felt personal and that wasn't necessarily one voice, but that collectively felt together like you understood what this brand's values were and what their approach to the world was. We really focused on making sure that individuals were able to shine. And that's how we did it through the community, through our team, and how we still do it today. I actually think it's really not that hard. It's just a matter of making the effort to be present and be like, you know, one of the things that Meryl and I did from the very beginning was just be a presence on the site. We were commenting on other people's stories and other people's recipes. And if somebody commented on ours, we were responding similarly on social and that we were accessible, that this wasn't just some impersonal brand. You know, I think the internet is, is <laughs> sometimes its anonymity is, is good or, or desirable, but I think that also it can leave you feeling very at sea as a consumer. And we wanted people to understand that we're based in Brooklyn. So if somebody goes to a product and they're like, how does this work? Or like, is this going to tarnish? Or whatever the question is, we can get back to them on site and people can see that. That is so important to who we are as a brand because we want people to see that we're not just, you know, marketing products to you to sell stuff, but that actually we've hand-selected every product that is in our shop, built a relationship with the manufacturer, or we've actually designed and produced this product ourselves, and we want to be there for you. We've just come out of three years of people in their homes having to think a lot about what they eat and looking at, you know, in their pantries and thinking about what they're going to cook. I wonder how, 13 years on now since launching the brand, how you think that relationship with food is shifting again? Well, I think our initial premise was right on. And the way food in our lives has evolved has become stronger and greater than we expected. Um, And obviously, no one anticipated the pandemic, but it certainly had a big impact on people's relationships, not only with, you know, what they're cooking, the meaning of food and its importance as a source of comfort and sense of security, but also their homes. I think we are now in a moment where (laughs) people want to get out of their houses and they want to travel and have someone else maybe cook for them. I totally get it. I share that. And the impact of the the pandemic, the lasting impact will be that people really were kind of forced to grapple with like what does home and good food mean to them and how they want to prioritize it. I think lots of people became better cooks and probably will cook differently going forward. I don't think anyone is looking to go back to cooking seven days a week like we all were or, you know, everyone baking their own sourdough bread or, you know, their sourdough starters. But, you know, I I think the long-term effects is that I actually think it has only underlined the importance of food in people's lives and certainly in our culture. A little um, turtle pond over here. Oh, nice. So we go right here. Yeah. And then right again. Amanda and I take a walk through the gardens of the hotel. She explains that as Food52 grew, it began selling products directly through the site. Now the company is steadily acquiring heritage cookware brands. In 2021, it bought Schoolhouse, a manufacturer of modern American heirlooms, as they describe it, that has played the long game and stayed true to its core by still being made in Portland. That was a $48 million deal. And in the same year, Food52 bought Dansk, a design brand founded in 1954 by two Americans, Ted and Martha Nirenberg. 
they wanted to bring great Danish design and make it accessible for Americans. And it just happened to be, you know, after the war, there were, you know, a lot of young families who were looking for beautiful things in their home, but, you know, on a budget that was more of a normal budget, not a high-end budget. And they celebrated all of these, you know, Danish designers. Jens Kiesgaard was their kind of first and primary designer, but they had, you know, many others. Sometimes they brought in jewelry makers. They brought in designers from all kind of areas of design, and they made everything from cookware to flatware to plates, lots of wood products. Some of their iconic pieces are these teak salad bowls, and it was a brand that really did incredibly well and was really beloved for many decades. And in the 90s and through the 2000s, it kind of started falling off a bit. We ended up being one of their biggest vendors. And so when the company that they were owned by, the Lennox Corporation, was being sold, the CEO, he asked if we'd like to carve it off and maybe we could preserve the brand, which was a a miraculous thing for him to do. And even more miraculous that it actually worked because the company, you know, which we bought was really just a bunch of (laughs) flat files of of designs from, from an archive. Yeah, it was an archive. We bought an archive and I, you know, it was IP, no team and some manufacturing relationships, a couple of distribution relationships, and then a couple of email intros to like Jens Kiesgaard's daughter who lives in his house with all of his original designs and Niels Refsgaard who's another one of the original designers who's in his 80s and who's still working and he's going to design new some new products for us. It's been a miraculous journey. You know, as soon as we announced that we had acquired them, we just heard from people all over the world who loved this brand and were so excited that someone was going to bring it back. So Our plan is to revive some of the old designs that have been lost, you know, and forgotten, bring back ones that, you know, people do know and love, but are only available currently in vintage shops. And we're also going to carry on the tradition of working with world-class designers, taking a more global approach. Instead of focusing just on Danish designers, we're going to approach designers around the world who have done incredible work on their own and and work with them on new Dansk products. We're moving the operations of Dansk to Schoolhouse because we want Dansk to become its, you know, basically revive it as its own, you know, standalone brand. And they have all of the kind of operations and resources in place to do that. And then once it gets to a size that it can kind of operate on its own, we'll, you know, build out its own team. But it's really it's, exciting. Yeah. And meanwhile, we are also producing our own products under Food 52. And part of the acquisitions, you know, the goal is to like not only preserve these incredible brands and set them up for success in the future, but to also, you know, all learn from each other. Clearly, like the first two acquisitions that we've made are these heritage brands, these brands that have been around, that have great loyalty and fandom and, and an archive of designs that is timeless. Now, Amanda, I'm talking to you in the hills just above Santa Barbara in a lovely garden which you can hear some of these birds around us at the moment. It's really alive with nature here. Your business is in Brooklyn. It's a Brooklyn-founded Brooklyn, Brooklyn <laughs> business. How important is it for you as an entrepreneur to take yourself out, to you know, retreat a little bit out into the West, into the countryside? What does it bring to your business, do you find, when you've got that time to take away and, and re- reassess? You know, I do think that as an entrepreneur, it's really important to just really kind of stay fresh because it's really, it's easy to get kind of stuck in the day-to-day kind of just grind of building a company and you never really fully get away with it from that. But I do think just like seeing new places and, I, you know, coming out to a place like California where like the farmer's markets are just so bountiful and, you know, you're driving along and there's orange groves and seeing different styles of architecture, like, you know, reminds me we're serving people all over who live in very different ways, but who have this shared interest. 
Amanda Hesse says that as Food52 continues to grow, the challenge is not to compromise on the fundamental values of the company she started with Merrill Stubbs some 13 years ago. Does she have any hard-won wisdom to those setting out on a new venture? An entrepreneur's personality is not like most people's. I've had a hard time accepting this, that you are quite alone. You will feel alone, and you have to just keep reminding yourself that not everyone is driven to create something new and will make those compromises. Most people are risk-averse, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's probably a much smarter way to live. But if you are not one of those people, you just have to remind yourself that you're not wrong. People constantly were telling me, and still, you know, that we can't do things or things are impossible. And you just have to ignore all of that if you really believe in what you're doing and understand their psychology is just it's just constructed differently from yours. It's very easy to get discouraged. And so I would just encourage you to keep going. And <laughs> just, accept that being an entrepreneur means being alone and sometimes being regarded as difficult because you've, you've got to strive. Yeah, you're different. And that's okay. And actually, the world needs both people who are risk averse, who aren't necessarily driven by new ideas, and it also needs people like us. You've seen thousands of recipes come through the community. I wonder if there's one that stuck out to you completely new to you that you've returned to over the years maybe one that's become part of your repertoire maybe even claimed it as your own maybe at some point <laughs> is there any is there any uh, that stick out in your mind uh, there's so many and i don't know exactly why this one is leaping to mind but it's one of many many that i love from the community and it's called lazy mary's lemon tart i think i love it because it so gets at what matters to a home cook which is that they want recipes that are really great but that are also uncomplicated and, you know, not going to make a total mess of their kitchens and, you know, that, that feel doable, that, that make them feel like, oh, wow, I've done this incredible thing without a huge amount of effort. You take a whole lemon, seeds, skin, everything, you know, you cut it into pieces and you throw it into a blender with a stick of butter and all the rest of the, the lemon curd ingredients, sugar, etc., and just whiz it until it's totally smooth. And then you pour that into the tart crust and, and bake it. And it's so much better than the average lemon curd because most lemon curd is made just with the juice. And so it lacks the complexity that you get from the pith and the rind and the seeds. And it's just fantastic. And it's also very funny to just use that you think it's great. You're like, this is never going to work. Why am I sticking this whole lemon into my blender? But it works perfectly. A great recipe is one that is written with empathy and empathy for a cook at any level. I think that there was a period where recipes were written with authority, and that was a mistake because really what people want is empathy. They want someone who's going, the whole reason they're following a recipe is because they need help. It's interesting because that goes back to voice, doesn't it? It all comes back to that idea of, you know, if the recipe is a brand, if you like, as you want a product that you're making, the voice of that person who's wrote it, you can hear it when you read the recipe. Yeah, and that's why I always love Nigella Lawson's recipes, because you can hear her speak. You know, she uses a very particular kind of vocabulary. Most people who are writing recipes in the community aren't necessarily professional recipe writers. But as a result, they actually really write great recipes because they don't necessarily know all this kind of traditional structures that you're supposed to use in a, in, you know, in quotes in a professional recipe. And so they write with real voice. They write like, you know, they're talking to you. And it's a beautiful thing. Amanda Hesse, thank you so much for joining The Entrepreneurs on Monocle 24. Thank you so much for having me. Amanda Hesse, the brilliant founder of the equally brilliant Food 52, talking to Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord, in Santa Barbara about the origins and the journey of the brand. You can learn more about Food 52 and the story at food52.com.
Next up on the show, we're going to hear from another fantastic founder who's innovative, and I'm going to say it, game-changing products are, incidentally, available to buy at you guessed it, Food52. But you can also buy direct and you can find them at a host of other platforms and in a fast-growing number of global markets too. So let's meet the founder and CEO of AnyDay, Steph Chen. AnyDay is perhaps the classic example of that brilliantly conceived idea. It's so elegant, so simple. You'll likely ask yourself, why didn't I think of that? And how come this doesn't exist already? What does any day do? Well, it's a line of glass microwave cookware that's designed to make delicious food easily in the microwave. It was a great pleasure to hear from Steph from her base in the Bay Area, where she's been busy continuing to take any day from strength to strength after her recent maternity leave. First up, I asked Steph, well, what are the reasons why there weren't other products out there already that can do what any day does? Steph explained that there are three main reasons, as she sees it, to explain why not. Just generally, people are scared of the microwave. It has an, a reputation of being sort of nuclear energy, radiation, right? People think it's unsafe. People think it's unhealthy. It's zapping all the nutrients out. And that's probably the main initial hurdle that people have to get over. The good news is, for us at least, is that the microwave is pretty much the opposite of all of those things. On one hand, it is really fast and really convenient. You know, you're just pressing a couple of buttons. But on the other hand, it's also totally safe. Like the waves coming out of it are just, you know, the same kind of waves as like phone waves or radio waves or light waves and not like x-rays. So there's a safety portion. And then on the health piece, it actually turns out that cooking food in a microwave actually results in healthier, more nutrient dense food than cooking food in you know an oven or on the stovetop and that's crazy to people that's totally counterintuitive to people did you know that by the way <laughs> well no i was just going to say i think i fell into that same trap and i think there is this misnomer isn't there that people have that convenience if you talk about convenience food people assume that it's bad it's always used in terms of cooking in culinary circles convenience is kind of equated mm -hmm. with compromise and i guess yeah, one of your totally. missions is to completely just turn that on its reverse head. that exactly exactly i mean for me like i've loved cooking my entire life i'm not afraid of doing the hard things in fact like right before i went on maternity leave i tried you know making croissants which by the way are not worth making at home if you ever felt like attempting it was not a good idea but I don't shy away from difficult things. But at the same time, the one thing that is common to probably every human on earth is that they need more time in their lives. Being a new parent is maybe like one of the most classic examples of people needing more time. And I've really found that to be true as a mother of two and a half months. I recognize sort of more than ever that being able to make really good food really easily is just so critical in my life. And I think the key with the microwave or with any day and starting any day is that the whole goal is not that you're sacrificing deliciousness. In fact, we're really trying to achieve the opposite, right? It's not about like, we're gonna make this food conveniently and easily and quickly, but it's gonna be at the sacrifice of deliciousness. No, no, that's not what we're aiming for at all. If anything, it's we're aiming for, you know, very high delicious to effort ratio because ultimately that's what's going to make us successful. 
that has to not be at the compromise of taste. I love the idea of a, of a deliciousness to effort ratio. This should be formalized in some kind of mathematical mathematical uh, <laughs> formula. Now, now, tell us just briefly a little bit more about the product specifically itself, because when I yeah. first looked at this, I was like, well, clearly there's a mistake here. Steph must be crazy. She's telling me to put metal in a microwave. <laughs> I know that I can't do this. I'm going to cause some kind of terrible conflagration and burn my house down right. and cause an explosion. How wrong I was. <laughs> and the product is not just the metal and the nature of it right. that means it's microwave safe, but there's some other features specifically of the product mm -hmm. which deliver the flavor the deliciousness you're talking about yeah but also these other qualities just tell us about some of the innovations specifically of the product because again they're simple but so smart right right and this kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about how has this not been invented yet i think another reason going back to this earlier point of why hasn't this been out in the world yet is this idea of microwave cooking is that the tools prior to any day have not existed like literally you can search microwave cookware on Amazon. And what you'll come up with, what you'll see are a sea of, you know, plastic, really cheap looking products. And if there's one thing that's legitimately not good to put in a microwave, it's actually plastic, even if it says it's microwave safe. So we sort of set out to design something that was made of really good materials. The whole product is made out of glass, silicone and stainless steel, no plastic at all. And the key to it, what makes it different and what makes it cook actually really successfully in the microwave is that it's all about trapping the steam inside the dish. So the lid is really where the magic is. It's a frosted glass bowl with a lid that's rimmed with silicone. And that silicone, when you're cooking, let's say sweet potatoes or broccoli, that silicone is going to trap the moisture, the inherent moisture of the broccoli or the sweet potatoes inside the dish. So basically what the any day dish allows you to do is it essentially turns your microwave into a super fast steamer, right? Cause you know, steamers, everyone's used a steamer before it's using the moist hot air around and waiting for that to penetrate into the food. But a microwave is cool because it's not just heating up the air around the food, like a steamer or an oven. It's actually cooking the food itself. Right, so microwaves work by basically vibrating very fast back and forth at the frequency of water. And food is completely basically made up of water. So that's why food cooks so fast. But the double-edged sword of that is if you don't figure out a way to keep that steam in, then your food will dry out because the water will end up boiling and it will boil off. So that's the beauty and the magic and the, honestly, the simplicity of the any day dish. Well, well, yeah, and this is what's so clever. It is this old truism, really, or a cliche that the best ideas are often the, the simplest. And it's when somebody reimagines something right from the, the start. And I want to ask you a little bit more about partnerships. It's very exciting, obviously, to have someone like David Chang, who I'm sure yeah. our listeners will know from Ugly Delicious, but you know, an amazing name and character in contemporary cuisine. That He's must incredible. be a thrill to have someone like that on board. And, and what does that mean to have his testimony? I mean, I've, I've seen him say things like he literally uses his every day. I mean, that just yeah. must be brilliant for you, right? It was so exciting to get Dave on board. That was a total stroke of luck for us. Basically, we happened to be on a call about a totally different topic, got introduced about something completely different. And on the call, he happened to say, you know, I sort of feel about this the way I feel about the microwave. And in my head, I was already starting to work on any day. And I was like, oh my gosh, should I tell him? Should I talk about it? And of course I did. And he was 
so into the product. He basically messaged me all the time telling me the newest thing that he had made in his any day dish and that he needed more because he was constantly running out. Dave has been just an incredible partner to us. I couldn't have asked for anyone who is more, more of a culinary authority, but at the same time, not at all afraid to sort of put his name out there. I think a lot of people would be scared, you know, like, oh, this is the microwave. This sort of sounds crazy. Is, is this going to hurt my own reputation? And Dave isn't afraid of that. If anything, he's, he wants to sort of go against the grain, which I've always really appreciated. And for me, it's not that we have dubbed the microwave as the holy grail. For me, the whole point is how do you make really good food really quickly, right? And it just kind of so happens that the microwave is a really good way of doing that and a way that people haven't really known about. So critically for us is finding people and finding partners like Dave who have that culinary credibility to be able to convince people to give it a shot. One thing that I'm positive about is once someone actually tries the any day dish and tries cooking, using it to cook in the microwave, they're converts. And then they go tell their friends and their family and all that stuff. It's just the initial hurdle that's the toughest to get people on board. And I would say the same is probably true for maybe like any new category that people are trying to start. Steph Chen, founder of AnyDay. And you can learn more about the brand and go on, challenge some of those preconceived ideas of yours about microwave cookery. Head to cookanyday.com. This programme was mixed and prepared as perfectly as a cake on a Food 52 shoot by Jack Dewars, my thanks to him, as always. And of course, thanks once more to Amanda and the Food 52 crew, to our Chris Lord in Los Angeles for his reporting, and to Steph Chen and all the AnyDay team. What a veritable parade of talents it's been this week. You can listen again and find out more about the entrepreneurs at monocle.com. Or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>